Good evening, everyone. Hey. How many times? Hopefully, we're not going to go through the mic at all tonight. I do have my back up here just in case. We're not going to waste our time with that. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we have a quick public service announcement before we start into tonight's uh, lesson. But it's really only a public service announcement for half of you. So the other half of you can look at the ceiling or whatever. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you that you've given us the word of God that makes us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ and equips us in every way to do your will. We pray that you would use the scriptures to train us, help us to have humility as we study, help us to submit ourselves uh, to the word that we might uh, be more conformed to the image of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Brant and Brett, who's right there, are going to come and talk about something that's coming up for men's ministry. This is on. The women still have to pay attention because you have to go home and tell your husbands. So, John's not getting you guys off the hook. Oh, yeah. Hi, everybody. So, uh, a number of years ago, uh, when the men's retreat team uh, got together after one of our retreats, uh, one of the things that we had all kind of had on our minds was that uh, we wanted to do more. Like once a year for a men's retreat just wasn't enough to, uh, to satisfy us, I guess. Uh, so what we ended up coming out of through those conversations was this idea of having a mid-year conference. Um, and, and this year it's going to take place on uh, June 2nd. It's a Saturday morning running into early afternoon. Um, and uh, it's a... It's a uh, not only is it a good opportunity for the men here to come and, uh, and be enriched, but it's also a good opportunity for uh, a lot of the guys that are leaders here at the church to um, utilize their teaching abilities, because this is all going to be in-house. This is all going to be right here with the guys uh, here that are running it. We're not bringing in any outside help, no, uh, no ringers. So um, uh, Brant's going to tell you a little bit more about how that's working. So, um, as Brett said, this year's men's conference, um, one of the good opportunities is for men in the church to be building up their skills to teach. So, uh, we have six different sessions, so six different guys in the church are going to be um, giving these sessions. Um, the theme of the conference this year is called Lay Aside, uh, based on Hebrews 12.1, um, where it says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. I probably should have memorized this verse. Um, Let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily besets us, uh, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So, and I kind of botched that. I missed some, of the, some points in the verse there. But um, we're going to be talking about six different sins that men need to lay aside. Um, these aren't specific uh, the conference isn't just for these sins. We really kind of want to um, take, if, I don't know how many people were involved in how people change study, but we really kind of want to take the how people change method and figure out 
what's causing these sins, what idols are in our hearts that's causing these sins. So um, we're going to be looking at lust, anger, comfort, uh, fear, um, bitterness. So those are some of the sessions that we're going to be looking at. Um, So please, men, sign up. Encourage wives, encourage your husbands to be here. It's going to be a great time. Come out and support the the men that we're trying to build up in the church. Um, And Brett's going to talk about some other items. Yeah. So, and, and Brant's going to be one of the speakers. So if you like looking at him, you know, that, that's one reason to come. So and if, that's not ex- if that's not exciting enough for you, okay, um, if, you're fr- if any of you guys are familiar with the men's breakfast that we used to have uh, a number of years ago, um, we, we're, ha- we're serving breakfast. Uh, we're bringing back the bacon, the spicy bacon that was always popular with the guys. Um, and then... Uh, the, the big headliner is that um, we're having Mission Barbecue uh, cater the lunch portion. And, you know, so we had to add them to the flyer, I guess, contractually. Um, but so, so this really should afford you the opportunity to invite any guys that you know that if you've been thinking about an opportunity to invite them if they're intimidated by coming to church. But, I mean, the prospect of bacon and, and barbecue... I mean, who could turn that up? So, uh, for the guys that are regulars here, uh, it's it's twenty five dollars for breakfast and barbecue and all the speakers. And for guys that are not regular attenders here, it's only fifteen dollars. On top of that, you could you could pre purchase the registration for this person, and then they have to come, right? They can't turn you down once you've paid for it. Those are the rules. So, um, so uh, as you'll see as in the next couple of weeks, we'll be handing out these flyers and stuff, and you'll see this QR code down here at the bottom, which should make it easier for you tech-savvy people to just link up there and, uh, and give us your money. All right. So, And if you guys plan on coming, try to sign up as soon as possible because we are having this catered by Mission Barbecue. We'd like to get a head count uh, as soon as possible so they know how, much, how many people are coming, how much food to get. So... Sign up quickly. Thanks. Abbott and Costello will be back up on Sunday to talk about the same thing. That was the dry run, so we can hopefully get all the kinks worked out before we have Sunday. I was going to say, we did just talk about verse memorization not that long ago, so that's a wonderful example for why it's important to memorize verses. What? I said I had it memorized because I knew I didn't have it right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, I feel like I I had a bunch more snarky comments that I was going to make, but I forgot there were too many that I could have made, so I'm just going to go on from there. All right, so tonight... Uh, first, I want to start with doing some review of the work you guys did from two weeks ago uh, that was specifically the cross-referencing uh, assignment that I gave you. Uh, so, and that was focused on Philippians 2, 9 to 11. So, if you uh, want to get together with the people at your tables and talk through that over the next 15, 20 minutes or so, uh, and try to work through the different uh, cross-references and I'd just love to, to hear from you guys afterwards and for you guys to discuss, what did you learn as you, as you did it? Were there any that, that you found especially helpful in helping you understand what Paul might be saying? 
Um, were there any profound insights, anything that you think might be theologically important? Any that didn't make any sense at all and you have no idea why the editor put it in there? Uh, there might be some of those. So uh, take the next 15, 20 minutes to talk about that. If you have time, uh, if you got to read chapter 15 of Dig Deeper, the Bible Timeline Tool, uh, talking about how we, when we read Scripture, we need to keep in mind where that text is on the Bible Timeline and then where we are and how do we read it in light of that. Uh, talk about that and uh, interact about the, does that change any way that you understand the Bible? Do you do, you do that already? Uh, and so forth. So take some time, do that. Uh, about 7.30, I'll bring us back together and we will uh, discuss those things. We'll try to work through the uh, cross-referencing assignment and then we'll move on to tonight's lesson. All right? All right, everyone. Let's, uh, let's hear what you guys have to say. Philippians 2, 9 to 11. Just a couple verses. I bet you took a lot longer than just reading a couple verses to do this. So what particularly stuck out to you guys in this? Did you, did you learn anything? Were you just frustrated by it? You're like, I'm never doing this again. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, Joanne. Yeah, so w within each cross-reference? Right. Yeah, so within each cross-reference, it doesn't necessarily fall under one category or another category. It could kind of fall into multiple categories. Remember what I said uh, last time is that the goal is not to put it into a category just to put it into a category and then see if you got the, the right answer. It's just to try to help you understand why the editor might be putting it there uh, and then what you maybe should be looking for in the cross-reference. Uh, but it could fit. It could fit under multiple, multiple ones. That's just a way that we categorize them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so instead of doing cross-references, reading it in multiple translations may be just as helpful. And I think there are definitely times where that's true, although I say it's both and. Uh, because reading the Bible in multiple translations won't help you see that uh, a, a, a New Testament passage is referencing an Old Testament passage, unless it explicitly said, says so. right? Or uh, that... Uh, somewhere else in the New Testament, uh, an author explains differently what this phrase means. It might help you understand it. So, so I, I agree with you. I think, I think reading it in multiple translations is absolutely going to be very helpful. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. But I don't think it wholesale replaces cross-referencing. 
Because I think there are things that you're going to get from other parts of Scripture that you're not going to get if you just stay there. And if we believe that Scripture is one book and that it interprets itself, then we need to do that, right? Yeah. Why, why don't they take all the possible things that it could mean and put it together into one thing, and then we wouldn't have to do any of this? Yeah. So we're, we're going to talk about this a little bit the next time that we meet when we talk about doing like word studies and trying to understand what a word, what a word means. There's actually, there actually is something that tries to do that. It's called the Amplified Bible. Have you guys heard of the Amplified Bible? Basically takes, um, uh, not everywhere, but lots of the places where there could be variations of translation or meaning, and it kind of puts in parentheses all the possible meanings, right? So it lays all the options out for you. Now, it is still just the person who's putting it together. It's their opinion about what all all the options are. But one of the problems with that is that it doesn't all mean the same, like all the same thing at the same time. And so a word could have multiple meanings. But it doesn't have all the same meaning, uh, all those meanings at the same time at once, right? And so you're still going to have to think through in the context which meaning is it because he doesn't mean uh, all of those things. So for example, I don't know if you ever noticed that the word polish and the word polish are spelled the exact same way. One's got a capital P, right? But um, so if I use that word in a sentence, you're going to have to use the context to determine which one I mean, and it doesn't mean both at once. Most of the time, I would imagine. If you have a situation where it means both at once, please tell me that will be a first for me, right? So I think there are tools like that, and they can be helpful, and they can be, they can be tools, but it's never going to remove us needing to do the work of thinking through interpreting the Bible. Right. Was, that a, was that a hand or a, just a stretch? What do we... Right, yeah, and that's one of the that's one of the things about doing cross references is remember the the these cross references aren't inspired like it's not like uh, as Paul was writing he was putting a little X next to therefore and saying oh well, by the way you got to go see this now there are places where the Bible does stuff like that but it's usually more more subtle they don't put an X next to it saying got to do this they say like as it's written in the prophet Isaiah, or, or they'll, they'll use an allusion to something in the Old Testament. So that's kind of like a, the Bible's internal cross-reference system. It's a little more subtle than, than uh, the, what we have in, in our Bibles, which is a bit more in your face uh, of, hey, you should look here. Um, so, but it's one of the frustrations of using the cross-referencing that the editors of their Bibles have put together is that you're not always going to be following what they're thinking. And there are times when I come to, I think I told you guys this the last time we were together, there are times I come and I think, I, I really don't know why they put that there. That doesn't make any sense to me. 
Um, and that means I either need to think harder or maybe that's just not a great idea on the editor's part and I can just forget about it. Uh, so I, I at least want to do the work of thinking through it, but it might be, yeah, I don't, really don't know what they're getting at here. Yeah. Yeah, Bob. Yeah, so uh, can, can you give me an example? Like, okay. <laughs> yeah, so th there's a chance that you're going to pick up as you do this, you're going to pick up things that are more kind of under the surface uh, that the author is intending, potentially intending. Um, we can't say, oh, we know for sure this is exactly what, you know, what he meant. Um, but you're going to have more of a tendency to see some of those things and see those connections, see those organic connections in the Bible. This is not something that we just stitched together. We found a bunch of books and we thought they were nice, and so we put them all together in one group, that this is something that is internally consistent and, and shows that all these books fit together in a way that the other books that aren't in the Bible, right, you hear about this, every Easter I swear this happens, where they start talking about <clears throat> the Gnostic Gospels and the secret Gospel of Judas. And the, you, you see the Da Vinci Code? Mary Magdalene wrote a, a Gospel, and then they voted to see which books were in, and they were suppressing women, so they kept Mary Magdalene's Gospel out. And it's like, well, no, they kept Mary Magdalene's Gospel out because it was written 200 years later by a fraud. It wasn't inspired, right? This is, so, but one of the ways we, we can see that is that there's internal consistency in the Bible and that the early Christians recognized that and they recognized that all the, the books that, that aren't in the Bible were not consistent with what they saw in the books they knew were inspired. So they said, no, we, we know those aren't inspired because that doesn't match up with what we've received. Janet. Yeah, uh, Jan's point was in, in uh, the Isaiah reference, which is the, the one that I really wanted to talk about because I think it's the most important one, um, that uh, in Isaiah, it says, to me, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. So that's in Isaiah in the Hebrew. 
And then Paul kind of uses that language in Philippians 2, and he says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and every tongue will, uh, every, uh, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I can tell you, one of the reasons that it says that is because that's the way it reads in the Greek Old Testament, right? So, sidebar, after the Jews got kicked out of the land, right, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, they got kicked out of the land because they were disobedient, a lot of them never came back, but they were still Jews. And so they wanted to read the Old Testament, but uh, as they were dispersed into the whole Mediterranean world, the main language that was spoken was Greek. Uh, And so after a while, the Jews stopped speaking Hebrew. These Jews who were out in the the Mediterranean world, in Egypt and in Greece and in Persia, they stopped speaking Hebrew because nobody else was speaking Hebrew, so they spoke Greek. So they did a translation of the Bible into Greek, translation of the Old Testament into Greek. And so uh, most of the Old Testament quotations in the New Testament are from this Greek Bible. Not all of them, but most of them, because that was probably the Bible that a lot of the Jews read at the time of Jesus. So the reason it says every tongue confesses that that's actually the word that's used in the Greek Bible. Uh, Now, you have to go back and say, well, is that an accurate rendering of the, of the Hebrew, and I think it is, um, but it is interesting that he's, he uses this instead of coming up with something different to convey that idea of swear allegiance, because it actually can mean the same thing. Um, I was doing some on the fly. I was looking at my Greek uh, dictionary to make sure I wasn't going to tell you guys the wrong thing. It can, that, that Greek word can mean to declare openly an acknowledgement uh, and, and to praise, and so it can have a very positive meaning in which it would be this, this open acknowledgement of somebody as Lord would basically be the same thing as, the, as taking an oath of allegiance. Um, but in Greek, it can have a different meaning, and so Paul might be kind of playing with that a little bit. Yeah, Andrew. Yeah, so part of that, so should and shall uh, basically are the same thing. Uh, In in terms of the translation of the Greek, it could be either one. Um, So part of the the challenge of this is that uh, Hebrew doesn't really have uh, a word for that. And so that's part of, Greek is a much more sophisticated and complex language. And so there's a lot more nuances. Hebrew, it's very kind of bare bones. I don't think so. But that's something that you might want to think about. I, I don't think so, but I also haven't done like a really deep dive on this. So. Yeah. 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 
<laughs> yeah, are acknowledging and swearing allegiance the same thing? Not necessarily, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, and so the difficulty is the way that Paul's using the Greek. Maybe he might be trying to make a point that he's saying this is like every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. In the context of Isaiah, it's every tongue is going to is going to bow in allegiance to me. Every tongue is going. I mean, which is the same as everything is going to acknowledge that I am indeed the Creator. There's no one else. Um, and Paul's saying, he's bringing it forward, and he's saying, that's not going to, I mean, everybody's going to bow, but it's not all going to be for the same reason. Right? And Because I, 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 love, I love teaching this text. So you get to the end, and you say, here's the deal. Everybody bows. Everybody bows. You can choose to bow now in allegiance, or you'll be forced to bow in submission. Yeah, Bob. Say again? Is allegiance just as certain? Oh, inserted. So if you have, I think, if you have the New American Standard, let me see if I was right on it. Yeah. If you have the New American Standard, you'll probably see this. Um, if you have the New American Standard, if you ever come across a, a place in Scripture where the, the letters are in italics, that's where slanted. That means that's something that the translators have inserted to try to make sense of what the, the Hebrew or the Greek says. Uh, and so they're saying, basically, if we were just translated this and we didn't put this word in, it wouldn't make sense in English. So this, we have to, we have to assume that this is what was in uh, the mind of, of the author. And usually that's right, and that's just kind of how those languages work. So allegiance is actually one of those words. So the Hebrew just says every tongue will swear. Uh, or every tongue will, will take an oath. And so I think from that idea, they're saying, well, this, is, this idea of allegiance is implied. Um, and the question is, is that an okay assumption. And if you don't think so, you take it up with the New American Standard Translators. Um, they're saying, every tongue will swear. Now, that does not mean swear the way we think of swear, like every tongue will curse. Uh, okay, that's not, what, that's not one of those meanings. Yeah, Brent. I have no idea. Probably because it makes it more confusing to people reading. It's like, what are these italics for? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. 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 You can either you can either bow now or you can bow later, but bowing later is a really bad idea. Because you're not going to be doing it willingly, and it's going to be the last thing you do before 
you're consigned to God's eternal judgment. So I think that's the encouragement is he's saying, you know, God exalted Jesus and every knee is going to bow to him. And you can do that now. You can swear allegiance. One thing I want to hit on this verse is... Um, that, was, that was my fault. That wasn't a problem. Um, we can, we can kind of go back and forth on well, what do we think about the, uh, the word allegiance and the place that has and, and all of that, but I don't want you to miss the significance of what Paul's saying. Okay? Based on this, this context in the Old Testament where uh, God says, um, Isaiah 45, starting in verse 18, Thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it uh, and did not create it a wait place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. And then he says some more things, and then he skips down, and he says, um, There is no other God besides me, verse 21, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. And they will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Who is the, the subject? Who is the, the Savior? Who is the, the Creator? Who is the one to whom people are bowing and swearing? In Isaiah, it's God. Right? So, uh, another sidebar. In the Old Testament, for most of your translations, when you see uh, the word Lord in uh, small caps, like little capital letters, uh, that's the way that most English Bibles put the, the Hebrew name of God uh, into the English Bible. So the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh, that's how we translate it most of the time. We put Lord in small caps. So when you see it in small caps, that's the, the name of the covenant God of Israel. And so it's interesting, he's, t- he's saying, I am God and there is no other. Everybody's going to turn to me and be saved. To me, every knee will bow to the God of Israel. So why is it significant the way that Paul uses this? Is, yeah. 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 Think about if you, were, if you were a good Jew and you're reading this and you're expecting to say, oh yeah, God, yeah, sure, God exalted Jesus, that's fine. Uh, and every, uh, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is a, a pretty significant claim that Paul is making to the deity of Jesus. He's saying the God of the Old Testament is Jesus. That on that day, just like the Old Testament said that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that the God of Israel is Lord, 
saying, that's, that's still going to happen. The name of the God of Israel is Jesus. That's a pretty big deal. When you talk to people who will say, the Bible, you know, the New Testament never really claims that Jesus is God. And say, you only think that if you've never read it. And this is one place that it does it. Now, could Paul have just said, therefore, Jesus is God? Well, he could have, but he didn't. I think the fact that he uses this, this verse in Isaiah, in, this, in, in Isaiah in the context, it's very clear. God's not talking about someone else. He's not talking about a, just his servant. He's not talking about uh, an angel or anything like that. He's talking about himself. And Paul says, that God is Jesus. All authority, and, and that was one of the cross-references, right? All authority in heaven and on earth has been, given, has been given to me. So that would sound like a claim to, to deity. Also, the many times when, when he was talking to the Jews, and the Jews says they picked up stones to stone him, and he says, why are you going to stone me? And the Jews said, because you, a man, claim to be God. And there are other places we can talk about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so, so for for Paul, there's no there's no problem in saying Jesus is God and the Father is God. There's no now he doesn't give us a lesson in metaphysics here to explain how God can be one God in in three persons. He just assumes that it's the tr- that it's true. Yeah. 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 He knows his Bible. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, uh, any other observations about the cross referencing assignment? Oh, that's Isaiah 45, 22, Isaiah 45, 22 to 25. All right. If uh, you want to turn in your workbook to page... 
So tonight you'll be happy to know that I, I don't think I've overprepared. I think I've said that before. I really don't think I have this time. Um, tonight we're just going to be talking about this idea that they bring up in, in Lesson 6. Uh, lesson 6 they call grasping the flow. Um, and so and we've talked about this already some, and so this maybe start to put some more of the pieces together. You remember when we did, one of the first things we did about studying a text was phrasing, doing a sentence flow. That seems like forever ago, right? Um, and if you remember, one of the things that we did is we, is we broke it up and uh, broke a, a verse or a set of verses up into phrases, and then we kind of lined them up and we tried to see how each one, each one relates. So tonight's lesson kind of builds on that by being more specific about looking at how do each of these phrases relate, uh, relate to other ones. Uh, and so we're, we're looking especially at these key words uh, in the text that help govern uh, how a text flows and, and how, the, uh, how the author develops an argument. So uh, the skill or the strategy we're going to talk about tonight is paraphrasing the logic uh, of a text. Um, they, they call, this is part of logical, what they call logical interpretation. And it's really just understanding how the various pieces of a passage actually fit together. Remember, we've talked about this a bunch, that passages of Scripture are not just collections of um, different statements about God or different statements about man, but the authors are actually trying to do something with what they're writing. They're putting their argument together. They're not just um, writing at random. Uh, and so, I think I say this here, this is, uh, part, this is partly in your uh, workbook on page 79, but I took more of it. This is John Piper talking about this. He says, the point of seeing propositions, a proposition is just a phrase, it's a set of words, it means something. The point of seeing propositions or phrases in relationship to one another is to help us grasp the flow of an author's argument. He says, it was a life-changing revelation to me when I discovered that Paul, for example, did not merely make a collection of divine pronouncements, but that he argued. That is, he was trying to construct a, a logical argument about something. He was making a case. This meant, for me, a whole new approach to Bible reading. No longer did I just read or memorize verses. I thought I sought also to understand and memorize arguments. And this involved finding the main point of each literary unit, each text, and then seeing how each of the propositions or phrases fit together to unfold and support the main point. And that's, that's kind of what we were doing with phrasing, right? We were finding, okay, what's the, what's the main phrase, the one that could kind of stand by itself as a, as a complete sentence, and then how do all the other phrases that are a part of this text relate to that? And so we've already been practicing with this, and this is just kind of trying to draw it out a little more clearly. Um, so they suggest uh, this, this uh, looks like I spelled logical wrong the second time. There's no O. You can tell I was doing this fast. Um, I suggest a strategy for helping us understand how a text fits together and what Paul or Peter or John or another author of Scripture might be trying to argue is by making a, 
a logical paraphrase. And so they say it's just a tool of uncovering the progression of an author's statements. It's intended to give the student a better grasp of the main point and of the passage, an understanding of how each phrase clarifies, supports, or qualifies the author's main point. So basically, it's reading a text, trying to figure out how all the different pieces fit together, and then trying to restate it in your own words. So it's almost like writing kind of a mini commentary on that verse or set of verses. You're trying to explain to yourself. So I try to write when I'm trying to write that. I'm like, I want to explain this to myself in a way that makes sense to me. What the author is saying. So, there's three kind of main steps to this. The first is to look at the key words, the linking words that are going to help you develop in your mind how the author is, is arguing. And these are usually little words. We're going to look at them on the next slide. Um, little words that you may skip over normally because they're not like those big meaty theological words like justification or the ones that you want to do word studies on. And those are important words and we'll talk about those. But in many ways, these little words can be even more important because they show how the big words relate to one another and that can make a big difference. All right, so I'll give you some examples. Step two would be once you kind of identify those words, what those big words are, or those, not the big words, but the little but really important words are, that kind of form the contours of the argument, then you start asking, now how do these phrases relate to one another because this word is in between them? And then step three is to then take that and try to paraphrase it in your own words. Um, see if you can kind of understand the logic of the passage. So I, I want to give you an example um, of why something like this might be important. Turn in your Bible to Philippians 2, if you're not already there. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is, work, who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let me take the, the last half of verse 12 and then verse 13. This can be a really confusing passage, and to some people, a intimidating passage. It says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. If I were to stop it there, I don't know that it would be a really encouraging verse, right? No one's going to memorize that as their life verse. What what connecting word do you think is really important in, in those verses? 
4, the beginning of verse 13. Because it's, it's going to tell you the, the reason why you can do what verse 12 says. Right? So the command is in verse 12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, how can I do that? Why can I do that? Because it is God who is at work in you to will and to work for your good pleasure. Now, if we were to change that word to something else, we were to say, Paul wrote, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, uh, and then God will be at work in you. It's not as good of news, is it? This, this is important for the way we think about sanctification and becoming more like Christ, is that um, God doesn't wait for us to get to work before he starts working in us. The reason we can work is because he's already at work in us. Do you see why that word is important? So, linking words. This is fun, isn't it? Um, chapter 5 of Dig Deeper, which you're going to read this week, talks about, uh, not all of these, but talks about some of these and uh, gives you some more tools for that. Um, these are on page 81 in your workbook. Um, you have some blanks there. I'm not totally sure why they put the blanks in. I think I'm supposed to read them to you and then you can fill them in. I'm not, I don't totally see how that's going to help you learn them. Um, so you have them all in the notes I gave you, so you can write them in at your pleasure. Um, see, th these, are not, um, these are not particularly big words. They're, they're ones that you might normally skip over. And moreover, furthermore, likewise, neither, nor, then, or, but, while... On the other hand, in that, by, even as, as, so, like, just as, not, but, that is, for, because, since, therefore, consequently, accordingly, so that, that, in order that, if, then, except, when, whenever, after, before, where, wherever, so, although, yet, nevertheless, however. One of the things they'll say is, when you're studying a text, you should circle or highlight those words because they're probably going to end up being significant for how you understand the way the text is put together. Um, there's lots of different ways uh, that, that these words are used. And I was thinking about trying to put something together um, that would outline all of those. And it was going to take way too long. And there was no way we were going to be able to do it tonight. So... Uh, I will try to put something like that on the website so that you have access to it. So you can see uh, when these words are used, it may be this kind of relationship between these two, these two clauses or these two phrases. Um, so, uh, like um, the word um, so that, or the words so that can often mean uh, purpose. And so, you have phrase one happens, so that 
phrase two happens. Right? So the purpose of phrase one is phrase two, right? So I can put stuff like that up uh, on the website. It would be, take too long, I think, tonight to, to try to walk through it all. Also, I don't have my notes for it, so it would make it super hard for us to walk through it all. Um, but you don't necessarily need to have this whole complex chart of all the ways this stuff works to, to understand what the author is at. Because we do this, I think, normally in the way that we read. Um, we maybe don't do it with quite as much intentionality when we read just regular old English stuff. Although, if you've ever tried to read uh, older English, um, you, you might have to do some of this. Uh, the rules of grammar have changed a little bit. And uh, like Paul, some people who wrote in older English um, didn't really think there was such a thing as a run-on sentence. And so their sentences go on and on and on and on and on. Right? And so you need to start breaking down, okay, so where, where are they at? And you have to start diagramming the English sentences, not just what the Bible is saying. Um, so, but I think n- normally if we sit down and we try to think through, well, how are these phrases related? What is... What does the that mean or the therefore mean uh, in, these, in these verses? You probably already have a pretty good idea of how those words work, right? So we're going we're gonna to do an example. You probably know this verse, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So... There are three or four linking words uh, in this verse. So the first thing we want to do before we start trying to paraphrase the logic is to say we've got to identify the linking words first and foremost. We've got to figure out where are, those, uh, where are those spots in the text where we can divide it and say, how does this relate to that? So what, uh, what do you guys think those words are? Okay, so four, the very beginning, right? Then what? So, okay, interesting. So, could be that, and then another that, and then but. You could say that. Oh, I didn't put four. Well, I'm wrong. Four counts. I think I didn't put four because four is actually reaching back to verse 15, and I didn't put verse 15 up here. So, but think about that. I mean, we quote this verse, and everybody knows, for God so loved the world. Do you ever think about where that actually fits in what Jesus is saying? Why is there a four? Right? What's, what's come before? Was anybody here on Good Friday? Like two people? Awesome. Um, on Good Friday, when we did communion, we talked about John 3, 14 and 15. Right? And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. 
And the next verse is this. And so, this is following on the heels of, is explaining, is expanding upon what Jesus just said about Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness and the Son of Man, Jesus being lifted up on the cross, and whoever believes, and, and he explains it. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So we start with four. But here. If we have those broken down, we can argue about which ones which. So could be one. Um, the word so is actually kind of interesting here. Um, a lot of times I think we assume that it means God loved the world so much. It could be what it's saying. But this is actually a place where reading multiple translations might be helpful. Um, at least one translation, I think more two translations that I know of, say something like, God loved the world in this way. And that, that works in Greek. That's what the word can mean. It can mean thus, so, in this manner. And so, the relationship between those two phrases might depend on how you take the word so. But we, we need, I, so this is kind of like phrasing, right? You list the propositions. Now, I didn't do any of the moving to the side here just to illustrate kind of what we're after. But what, uh, what's the relationship between A and B? There's the that. So why is that there? Okay. Yeah, so it could be, if we take so as in this way, could be that um, this is the way that he loved the world, he gave his son. So the relationship could be one of the means by which God loved the world was giving his son. Right? And I think you would have, if you did cro your cross-referencing, you can go to Romans 5 and says, it says, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So you have another place where the same idea is present. Okay, so it could be that. Right. Yeah, Brant's asking, does creating a sentence flow help with doing this? I think yes, and I think uh, basically I'd probably be trying to do it at the same time. Right, so... Um, it doesn't have to be done at the same time, but once you, as you're trying to create the, the, the phrasing and you're moving the phrases over and you're trying to figure out how each one fits together, I think as you're trying to figure out, well, which one goes under this and which one goes under that, you're probably going to be asking some of these questions, right? What is, how does that relate to this? Now, you may not ask the specific questions of, well, does, does, does that explain the, the, the means by which God loved the world or does that explain the extent to which God loved the world or the result of God's loving the world being that he gave his only son. Well, yeah, and so I think theologically we would say, yes, it's, is it all of the above? Well, yeah. And the question is, can we figure out what does, what does Jesus mean in this text? Now, is it possible that he, he uses this maybe somewhat ambiguous term in order to have it mean more than one thing? It's possible. 
So it could mean, I think I said, result, God loved the world, and the result of God's loving the world was that he gave his only son, or means. God loved the world, and the means by which he loved the world was that he gave his only son. So that's what I mean by when I say result or means of A. What about the next one? That whoever believes in him should not perish. Okay, the result of? All right. So God gave his son with the result that whoever believes in him should not perish. Okay. The effect, uh, so God gives the son, the effect of which is that whoever believes in him would not perish. Pretty close. Say purpose. The purpose for God's giving the son was that whoever believes in him would not perish. Right? Now, that is used twice. But it means different things. So that's part of the challenge of this, is that some of these words could be used in different ways. And this is where doing a paraphrase can be helpful because I have to start thinking through how would I, how would I explain that? Um, how would I draw that out? So God uh, loved the world in this way that he gave his only son with the purpose that whoever would believe in him would not perish or with the result that whoever believed in him would not perish but the, the that means something the second that means something different than the first that now I think when you read this verse you, you probably you probably know that without thinking about it you just, that's just the way that you, you read it But this forces you to slow down and really try to understand the relationship between these. And maybe in this verse, it's it's easier because you're familiar with it and you kind of know what it's saying. But there are going to be some other verses where there might be some pretty profound differences. Yeah, Brett. Well, so that's what I was saying to, to Joanne, is it's, is it's, it's po- yeah, you weren't listening, clearly. Um, are they totally mutually exclusive? No, but you have to think through which one you think the author's using, or are there some times where the author is intentionally being ambiguous and intends maybe both meanings? I think there are times where that's the case. This might be one of those times. I also think a lot of times, and I'm not saying you're saying this, but I think a lot of times we can kind of default to that. It's like, well, it could mean this, this, or this, so it means all of them. Let's move on. And we don't actually do the work of saying, well, no, it probably doesn't mean all of them at once. Let's try to think through what it does mean. 
You might disagree with one another, but that's okay. Yeah. No. <laughs> Not necessarily. Uh, I mean, so that's part of the problem is that there are, there are different words in Greek for some of these things, but some of the Greek words are exactly the same and they're used totally different ways, right? So that's, unfortunately, that's just kind of the way that language works. So we have to think. Yeah, Janet. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so, so if we were to, to take Janet saying we should look at the context, which is a good idea, right? Do we, anybody remember that we talked about that? Anyone? Bueller? If we look at verse 17, does that help us understand more of what uh, the author might be, be saying here? Now, there is some debate, this is just kind of an aside, if this is, uh, continues to be a part of what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus, or if Jesus' quote ends at verse 15 and verse 16 is John's explanation of what Jesus is saying. Um, some of your Bibles, if you have a red letter Bible, some of your Bibles may have some of that in red and some of it not. Um, the original Greek and Hebrew manuscripts, Greek for the New Testament, didn't have red and black ink um, to determine what Jesus said and what, what he didn't say. The, the red letter thing was something we came up with. Um, so you can't necessarily go off of that. That's somebody's decision. Uh, and in fact, you, you're, you may have a footnote in your Bible, uh, potentially, I don't think mine has it, but uh, that uh, some uh, translations may have the quote, Jesus' quote, going longer or shorter, things like that. So, but does verse 17 help us understand what it means that God gave his only son? What might it, might that help us? Is it, does that help us determine potentially what might be? Is it the result of God's loving the world or the means of God's loving the world? Yeah. Hmm. Mm-hmm. 
sure, this is, this is what I've determined to do to save my people. So, and compelled by his own character, right? Not by any kind of outside force that's like God's being forced to do something. So, good distinction. But, yeah. So, any, did, you, did you have any ideas or was that just a... Well, that's okay. We're all learning. I may not have the right idea either. Yeah, so um, Janet's saying that because verse 17 says that God's giving of the Son was in order to save the world and not to, to condemn the world, um, that it may be uh, more indicative of the, the result of God's love than it is simply the means of God's love. Is that a fair characterization, what you said? Yeah, okay. Yeah, so, no, so that's possible. But this is, this is, again, one of the strategies. Remember, we can't use, we can't ever just think, oh, if I just do the logic thing, I'm going to understand everything about the text. We need to be using all of these tools. And so we're looking at the context. Um, we're looking before it and, and after it. So I don't have an answer for that. So you guys can make that what you want. Um, so I said that, that whoever believes in him should not perish is the, the purpose of God's giving the Son. And then... D is, the, is a contrast with C. So whoever believes is not going to perish, but they're not just going to not perish, they're also going to have eternal life. So it's not just a, um, you deserve to die, I'm going to clear you of this sentence, now don't do it again. It's a, now you're not going to perish, but you are going to have eternal life. could argue that. The result of not perishing is having eternal life. Remember, this is not an exact science. There's no answer key to which is, is which. It's all trying, just a tool for us to try to understand how the Bible fits together. It's been, it's, uh, so, yeah. Yeah, sure. So Alexander's uh, saying um, the, the Proverbs, and, and it's not just the Proverbs, but a lot of Hebrew poetry is written um, in, in this, this parallelism. So the first line will say something, and the second line will say something that's almost the same thing, uh, or exactly the opposite thing, but all these lines are set in, in parallels. Um, it's interesting. Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme. Um, we're used to poetry rhyming. Um, Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme. But isn't that interesting? Because if you were to translate Hebrew poetry, uh, it wouldn't sound like poetry because it doesn't rhyme. So isn't it interesting that, that the way that the Hebrew language is designed is that poetry can be translated in other languages? Isn't God merciful? So, 
to Alexander's point, could the author be doing something like that where he's using um, the C and the D lines in sort of a, a parallel? Yeah, probably not exactly the same way as the, as the poets do, but are they both saying something that's basically the same? Yeah, and actually, in verse 15, Jesus says, whoever believes in him will have eternal life. So he doesn't say anything about not perishing. And then the next thing, whether it's John or Jesus, says, now whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So, yeah, sure. Well, yeah, so, so by, by contrast, I mean um, having eternal life is the opposite of perishing. Yeah, don't look too hard. (laughs) Which one? Oh, yeah, I agree. Yeah, the only reason I didn't put it there is because then we'd have to go back and talk a lot about what came right before it. Yeah. Yes. So that's my mistake. Yeah. Oh, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wouldn't read perish meaning non existence. I don't think that's what it means. Um, so I don't know off the top of my head what the word is. But yeah. No, I would, I mean, because we, we could use the same thing. We talk about death, and, and oftentimes in our minds, death is, well, that's, you know, the end. It's just it's death and it's, and it's over. It's not the way the Bible talks about death or the way that the, the Jews and those in, people in those days would have understood the idea of death. They had an understanding of there's an existence after death. So. All right. Uh, then I paraphrased it. God so loved the world uh, that the result was that he gave his only son. He did this for the purpose that whoever believes in the son would not perish, but instead they would have eternal life. Or, depending on how you take the word so, God's love for the world was shown in this way. God gave, not have, his only son. He did this for the purpose that whoever believes in the son would not perish, but instead they'd have eternal life. So really, I'm just trying to insert something more where the, the that is uh, or the, the but or any of these linking words to, to clarify and make explicit the connections between these phrases. So here's an example of an interpretive paraphrase you're probably familiar with. The message by Eugene Peterson. So the message is not the Bible. Let's just get that out there. The message is a paraphrase of the Bible by Eugene Peterson. Now, whether or not you like the way he paraphrases it, this is what he's trying to do. He's trying to uh, take what the Bible says and say it 
in a way that makes these connections explicit. And there's a bunch of places where I think he doesn't do a good job. There's probably a bunch of places where he thinks I don't do a good job. I don't know he's never talked to me. I can't imagine why. So, but this is what he said. This is how much God loved the world. So you can see how he takes the word so. This is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son, and this is why. So that no one need be destroyed by, uh, by believing in him. Uh, I think there should be a period there or a comma. So that no one need be destroyed, but by believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. I would take issue with the way he paraphrases eternal life, but... Mm-hmm. NASB is actually way on the other side. So I'm going to punt that question for a couple of weeks until we talk about translations. So we're going to talk about translations, not the next time, but the time after that. All right, so we'll talk about why things are translated differently and kind of what that spectrum looks like. So, uh, but, public service announcement, if you're going to do inductive Bible study, I would not use the message. If you want to read an interpretive paraphrase of the Bible, go ahead. But don't study the Bible from the message. End of public service announcement. Okay. So, um, on your, uh, in your workbook, page 80, you have Philemon uh, 1, 13 to 17. So I'd, I'd like for you to take about five minutes, read through that, and underline or circle or somehow mark uh, whatever way you want those uh, important linking words. And then uh, after that, we'll go and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about those. And then there's a couple that we'll work through, trying to think through the relationships. Uh, and then we'll talk about the way that they do the paraphrasing. All right, so take about five minutes to do that. Okay, what do you guys think? What are some of those important linking words or phrases to help us understand the text? Sure. Yeah. Yes. Nope. Uh, Proposition is just like a phrase. Preposition is a different thing. So when you read proposition, just think a phrase. 
Yeah, so that's where it's, yeah. Yeah, so it's, a lot of the keywords are prepositions. That's different, that's English grammar, which by the way, I didn't, the, the way I learned English grammar was when I took Greek. I didn't, I, this is a true story, like I, I didn't remember a single thing about English grammar until I had to learn Greek grammar and then I needed to learn English grammar in a, in a hurry because I didn't know what any of this stuff meant. So what are the, uh, what are the words? What are the, those key linking words? Okay, in order of that? What? But? For? That you? For this? No longer? Yeah. So if? Yeah, here, this is, uh, there may be some I left out. In order that but, in order that by, uh, but, for, that, but, as, but, so if. Uh, yeah, both could be one. Both and. I think I would put both of those. It really depends on how, how far you want to break it down. I mean, so some of these are probably a bit more important than others in terms of what we understand about the text. So things like in order that um, uh, and so if might be a bit more important to what Paul is saying than uh, just but or by, but maybe not. So, if you go on to page 81, Brent, we got a question. Why not? Yeah, yeah. What's the logical relationship between the two? Logical, get it? I'm glad Mike is the only person that laughed. Thanks, guys. Appreciate that. Um, what's the relationship between, between this, kind of figuring out the logic of the passage, and the, the phrasing or the sentence flow? Um, and Brent's point was, when we, if we do a, a kind of a phrasing diagram of the text, we're going to have a lot of this information already, because we're going to see where the phrases kind of break up and what some of these keywords are. A lot of the phrases will start with these keywords and so forth. And so some of that work is going to be done for you if you do a, a, a phrasing diagram. Um, all we're talking about tonight is a way to 
to use that information to help us understand the text more. So you don't have to do phrasing in order to do this, in order to think through how the phrases fit together. And you'll find that a lot of times you do this, like I was saying, we do this in English all the time. We don't even think about it. It's just natural. Um, you probably do this when you read the Bible as well. Um, so this is, this is a way to make it more explicit uh, in your own mind that this is what it's, it's saying. And then it can really help when you're doing sentence phrasing to understand exactly how those phrases fit together. So it doesn't need to be a separate thing, but it can be. If you decide, I'm not going to phrase this text, I'm just going to try to figure out how they fit together. So, But both are it's kind of approaching it from two different angles. Um, on page 81, um, we have another exercise where... They've got three, uh, starting on page 81 and going on to page 82, they have three three of the the linking words and uh, the the phrases that go around them, and they're asking us to go through them and say, how do these relate? So first... um, from Philemon 113. This is uh, number two on page 81 down there at the bottom. Uh, so what is the, the linking word that's important here for relating these two phrases? Okay. In order that. So how would that help us understand how these two phrases are related? Cause and effect, what do you say? Why, why, what? Yeah. So, uh, why would I be glad to keep him with me? Because this. Right? So, purpose, reason, the re- you know. One of the ways that I do this that maybe doesn't necessarily involve lots of um, words that try to define the relationship is I, and, and we talked about this when we did phrasing, and so if you go back and you look at some of what we talked about, you'll see it is I just kind of try to ask questions, and I'm thinking, what question does line two answer about line one? Or something like that. So, the why question. Um, I would have been glad to keep him with me. Why would you have been glad to keep him with you? Well, in order that he might serve me on your behalf. So, the, the purpose of Paul being glad to keep Onesimus with him is that he might serve me on or he might serve Paul on the behalf of Philemon so phrase 2 expresses the purpose of phrase 1 if you flip over to page 82 this one's a little more complicated because there's three phrases. <clears throat> Just remember in the, in the context of saying, for, um, this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. Bond servant here. I don't remember which translation I was using. Same thing. So what are, the, what are those words that are important here? 
Okay, could be as. But, or which as are we talking about? The one in three? The third one, okay. I was looking at the first one. So yeah, in number three, yes, as, but. Ding, ding, ding. So what's the relationship between one and two? Okay. There's a contrast. Um, You're going to receive him back. He's not going to be a slave or a bondservant. He's going to be more than a bondservant, more than a slave. So, number two expresses a contrast with number one. So how does number three relate to number two? Okay, in the same way, so it could could be expressing a contrast. Could could be certainly expressing a contrast with number one, right? Receiving him back no longer as a bondservant, but as a beloved brother. You could take that middle phrase out and it would perhaps mean the same thing. Could be the result of, um, so as a, as a beloved brother and more than a bondservant, being a, say that again, sorry. <laughs> you don't try to blame this on me. Yeah, so. He says, you're not going to receive him back as a slave. You're going to receive him back as more than a slave. What's that mean? What? Better better even than a slave. What are you going to get him back as? (laughs) As a beloved brother. Yeah. Yeah, so how should you consider him now? Or um, how are you receiving him back as more than a slave? Or what does it mean that you're receiving him back as more than a slave? Yeah, or something along those lines. Yeah, you're receiving him back as a beloved brother. So three explains what he means by two. It clarifies what he means. Like, What do you mean that I'm receiving him back it's more than a bondservant. Well, you're receiving him back as a brother. He's not just your slave. Now he's your brother in Christ. I don't know. No, because I'm, I'm using a... Ooh, easy there. All right, I'm going to give you my confession for this. Um, why, Brand's asking, why does it flash? Here's why. I think it's because I'm using a PDF instead of PowerPoint. So I'm super OCD. Like super OCD. No, said no, no, they don't believe you guys don't believe me? What? What's wrong with my sh- what's wrong with my shirt? Oh my word. Now I'm really self conscious. 
So, <laughs> stop it. So, I'm so OCD, when I, when I make the PowerPoint on my computer, and I put it on the computer back here, not everything lines up the exact right way. If I make it a PDF, it's locked in stone. It's exactly how I want it. So I use the PDF. So, the, what's that? That's the right way to do it. Thank you. That's the right way to do it. So, Pastor Tom doesn't even make his own slides. So, well, I could do it. Oh, that's right. If I made the background white. But then you wouldn't have this cool stone background. So, I guess I'll consider that for the future. So, the Bible. What's, uh, what are the important words here? If, and there's a, there's a so at the beginning, I didn't put that on there. So, if, as, could be. If that were one, I might want to make that one a third phrase. <laughs> so this one's, this one's a bit of a trick question. So if, uh, and this would be part of kind of what's, what's assumed here is that it's a if then. If this, then this. So the word then isn't there, but that's what he's getting at. If this, then this. You could have put that in italics. Someone's been paying attention. Actually, well, only that part, though, I guess, yeah. I know. So, um, I'm in the wrong book. So then, what's the relationship between these two phrases? Cause and effect? Okay, it's conditional. So, if you do this, that's the condition, then do this. So, number one states the condition, and number two says, this is what's going to happen if the condition's met. So, Philemon, if you consider me a partner, I think the subtext is, and you should, uh, especially because earlier in the book, Paul talks about uh, or maybe that's, no, I'm right. I think it's a different book. I'm getting Philippians and Philemon confused. Um, if you consider me a partner, then Philemon, receive him as you would receive me. And so if you wanted to make the as uh, another phrase, then you could say, well, what's the relationship between as you would receive me, receive him and as you would receive me? And so receive him. How should you receive him? Receive him like you would receive me. Uh, I was going to have you do this, but I'm running out of time like normal. Yeah. Okay, what is... The, pro- the proposition is just the, the phrase or the thought unit. 
So that's it's just the the part of a part of a verse. So there are some propositions or phrases that could stand by themselves and be complete sentences, and there are some that can't, and that they have to be related to something else. So but we don't have time to get I could give you all the the nitty gritty of that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so here I'm going to give you real quick their um, logical paraphrase of Philemon 1, 13 and 14. So you can see kind of what they're after with that. So Philemon 1, 13 and 14 says in, in the text, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. So then this is how they paraphrase it to try to draw out those, those relationships. I, Paul, would have been glad to keep Onesimus with me so that by staying with me, he might serve me on your behalf, Philemon. Onesimus could have served me while I am still in prison, and you know that I'm in prison for the sake of the gospel. But I preferred not to keep him with me without your explicit consent. Therefore, I'm sending him back to you in order that your goodness might not be forced by my decision. But if you did decide to send him to me, that decision would flow from your own accord. And I believe that voluntary goodness is much better than compelled goodness. And then they summarize that. It says the reason that Paul didn't keep Onesimus was that so Philemon's goodness to him would not be compelled. So if we had more time, I was going to have you try to do that for Philemon 1, 15 to 17. Um, if you want to try that on your own, you can. I will put the, their version of the paraphrase up on the website for you to look at. Um, so you can, you can compare it. Your homework. Oh, well, is, you, well you, actually you have it, I think. Then I might think I put it up there. Your homework uh, for next week. Next week. May 1st is the workbook, pages 85 to 87. Um, it's going to ask you to, to work through some of the text in Philippians 2 and try to, try to work with the logic and those linking words there. Read Dig Deeper, uh, pages 49 to 56. That's the linking words tool, so it's going to reinforce some of the stuff we've talked about. Might be helpful uh, for that. If you're reading inductive Bible study, you can read um, that part of inductive Bible study. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On page 85, do, yeah, do it all. So, bam, 9 o'clock, done. Victory. Thank you. See you next week.